There it is, he said to his son as they came over the horizon. Ten trillion tons of danger. He glanced over his shoulder at Chewie, who was busy checking readings and working some calculations. The Wookiee stared intently at the screen, scratched his hairy head a couple of times, then issued a wail. Seven hours! Han echoed, stunned. He looked back to Anakin. Serpidas got seven hours. The scope on the console to Anakin's side beeped, and he bent over it. What have you got? Han asked. Weather satellite. Download its banks, Han instructed. Let's see if we can find any clues or a pattern. Chewie wasted no time in tying the Millennium Falcon's computers into the satellite's banks. The pulse coming from the planet, Anakin cried. Look, he said, pointing to a diagram he had generated to show Dobito's last two weeks of movement. Every time it crosses this part of the planet, it comes down steeper. Something's pulling it down. Something in the exact middle of this arc. He traced his finger to his estimate of that point, a spot not too far to the east of the city. There's 50,000 people in Cernpital City alone, Han remarked. And probably no more than a hundred ships, Anakin added. They took the Falcon right in for the dock. Han looked to Chewie. You load the ship, he instructed. Pack them in as tight as you can. We've got to mobilize all the other ships, Anakin said. We can't let any take off unless they're full. Han nodded. Still not enough, he reminded. We've got to find out that source and take it out. I can find it, Anakin volunteered. Han spent a long moment studying his younger son. The thought of sending Anakin to find this unknown source, this instrument powerful enough to bring down a moon, terrified him. But he had to trust in his son. We'll get you a land speeder, he said. You get out there and find the source, and call in the coordinates right away. Don't play around with it, just call it in. Anakin nodded and moved to the weapons locker, strapping a blaster onto his belt opposite the lightsaber. Han grabbed Anakin by the arm and ran down the landing ramp with him, drawing his blaster and waving it about to keep the scrambling mob at bay. Outside, they did indeed find a landspeeder, with a familiar old man, the mayor, sitting calmly on a bench beside it. Seeing Han help Anakin over the side and into the cockpit, the mayor came waddling over, a large pack on his back. I knew you'd come back. Han looked at him curiously. Hero type, the old man said calmly. Can you stop the moon from falling? I haven't got that kind of weaponry, Han answered. Is it being pulled down here by something? The surprising old man asked. By a gravity well, an interdictor cruiser, perhaps? Han's look became even more skeptical. I haven't always lived here, the old man explained. And I'm no stranger to the more advanced ships. Han motioned for him. Go with my son, he instructed. The old man climbed in, and Anakin put the landspeeder into full throttle. Luke and Mara had done their homework on the way to Belkaden, and they held no doubts, with visual inspection looming before them, that something had gone terribly, terribly wrong. The formerly green planet was, to their way of looking at things, dead. Yeoman Carr heard the whine of the Jade Saber's powerful drives as the shuttle made its first pass overhead. 
The warrior strapped on his Von Doom crabshell-plated armor and his bandolier of flying thud bugs, did a quick check of his pouch of sentient and binding blow-rash jelly, and took up his amphistaff, another living creature, a vicious serpent that could harden all or part of its body to the consistency of stone, including narrowing its neck and tail so that they would cut like a razor, or could become supple and whip-like for its Yuzhan Vong master. The warrior's smile was genuine. He was going to enjoy this. Luke and Mara came out of the security of the Jade Saber tentatively. They couldn't stay on planet for long, even with their breath masks, for it was too hot, and every step would literally suck the moisture right out of them. As they approached the walled compound, they noticed that all the ground in the area was covered by strange-looking little reddish-brown beetles. They're all dead, Luke noted, stepping gingerly over the crunchy insects. And R2-D2 blew whistles of protest as he zoomed through the beetle cluster. They entered through a large metal door. The compound was deserted. Whether the researchers left or not, there are databanks inside, Luke remarked, leading the way toward the main building. We'll get some answers. R2-D2 zipped right behind him, and Mara was fast to follow, though she paused a few steps later and bent down, finding yet another of the strange beetles. What is it? Luke asked, turning back to see his wife with the beetle in her hand, and an intense look upon her face. Mara shook her head slowly, her gaze locked on the little creature. Luke noted how hollow her eyes seemed, as if the beetle or this planet was somehow draining her. He wanted to ask if she was all right, but wisely held the question, reminding himself that his capable wife didn't need his worry. Inside, the station was dim and cooler, and with air that was much more breathable. Let's find the main computer so that R2 can tap in, Luke suggested. They started down the darkened corridors with all speed, for none of them wanted to stay in this place any longer than absolutely necessary. Here it is! Luke called, pushing open one door, to reveal a large circular room. Great setup, Mara remarked when she entered, seeing the array of seven control pods. R2-D2 rolled to the nearest pod and extended his computer interface, linking up. Download everything they've got, Luke instructed. That'll take a few minutes, he said to Mara. Let's go and see if we can find anybody. Mara checked lockers and closets, even coat pockets and private desks. In one room, she found some scribbled notes in an old-fashioned flimsy-plast journal, dated just over a week earlier. Describing the increasingly foul air and the inability of the station to raise any communications off-planet, or even to find the feeds from the satellites, the writer went on to detail the investigation to this point, how someone named Yeoman Carr kept saying that this was all a passing weather oddity. The page ended ominously. Perhaps it is natural, but I believe it is linked to... To what? Mara asked aloud in frustration. She ruffled the flimsoplast but found no further writing, then opened the desk drawer to see more unused flimsoplast, a couple of data cards and some small bottles. One of the bottles caught her eye. A beetle. Mara took the beetle she had collected, comparing the two. They were the same species. She took the journal and the bottle and headed back into the hallway. A screech from behind from R2-D2 in the control room turned her fast in that direction. 
The droid was well on his way, figuring the download to be about 70% complete, when he swiveled his domed head about and saw the dark, caped figure. He was clad in some dark-plated armor unlike anything R2-D2 had ever seen, and holding a snake-headed staff. The caped menace pulled something from the bandolier about his chest and threw it. R2-D2 wheeled the other way, his interface connection disengaging, and the resulting abrupt shift toppled the droid onto his side. And just in time, for the flying thing zoomed past, smashing into the pod, driving right into it. The door at the back of the room banged open and Mara rushed in. Stop, she cried. We're not your enemies. She reached for her lightsaber, but recalling her weakened state, drew her blaster instead. Who are you? I am Yomin Kar, the harbinger of doom, the warrior said with a sinister laugh. I am the beginning of the end for your people. Mara's face screwed up with incredulity. Do not mock me, Yomin Kar roared. And he pulled a second thud thug from his bandolier and let it fly at Mara. She took a shot at the bug, but it dodged. And then she had to dive aside as it swooped around. It started to loop for a second pass, but this time she got her aim and blew it out of the air. Mara turned her blaster on Yeoman Carr. I think you'll be coming with me, she said. The warrior laughed again and started to reach for his bandolier. Don't make me, she warned, raising the blaster threateningly. He just laughed and continued, and she shot him. But the magnificent plated armor turned the blast aside. Eyes wide with disbelief, Mara had to move again and quickly as Yominkar tossed out another thud bug, and another, and another. She tossed her blaster aside and drew out her lightsaber. Then she went into a frantic dance, twisting and parrying, the lightsaber intercepting the darting bugs as they came at her in rapid succession. Off to the side, R2-D2 managed to upright himself. He wheeled out into the hall, knowing that there was nothing he could do to help Mara directly. But Luke could, the droid understood. And so he headed down the corridor. Mara dived into a forward roll to regain her balance and to avoid any forthcoming attacks. Her lightsaber was at the ready as she came up. But the next missile, a gooey substance, plopped down, harmlessly, she believed, a couple of meters in front of her. The armored warrior leapt forward, landing perched on the railing in front of the woman. She started forward to meet his charge. The gooey pie on the floor before her expanded suddenly and caught her by the feet, rushing to encompass her ankles and hold her fast. Yeoman Carr howled in apparent victory. Mara's lightsaber swished down, and in a wild blur of motion, she sliced the gel from her body, and she still kept the presence of mind to arch her blade back out in front to intercept yet another thud bug zooming for her. The warrior came on, staff sweeping down. Mara fully expected that her lightsaber would shear through the staff, but the warrior's weapon caught the lightsaber, accepting the brunt of the hit without apparent damage. Yomankar stabbed with the snake head end of his weapon, and to Mara's horror, that head opened wide its maw, fangs dripping with venom. She leapt back, though not far. It was as if she had wads of gum stuck to the bottoms of her feet. She accepted, then, that this opponent possessed weapons that she could not anticipate. She reached into the force, then, trying another tactic on the man. And then she nearly buckled, for there was nothing. It was as if the force was not a part of this warrior, as if he refused to acknowledge its existence in such a profound manner that it did not exist for him. Mara had to rely strictly on her fighting skills, 
With her sudden, desperate twist, rolling her left hand over her right, she snapped the descending staff harmlessly down to the side and in front of her, and then she started up, thinking to come in at the warrior up high. But she had jelly on one knee, goo that halted her progress abruptly. That proved fortunate, for Yeoman Carr reacted more quickly than she believed possible, straightening and slashing his staff across viciously, a blow that would have taken her across the head or neck if she had continued upward. Quick to improvise, she stabbed the warrior, who was as surprised as she by the fact that she was still down low, in the knee. Then as he howled in pain, she slashed her lightsaber across, taking him out at the knees and dropping him hard on his back. He started to roll toward her, bringing his staff across for her head, but she had the tip of her weapon out in time, pointed at his breast, and his own momentum drove him into it, the lightsaber finding a crease in that magnificent plated armor where the blaster had not puncturing Yeoman Carr's chest, poking into his heart. He froze in place, staring hard at Mara. You're unworthy, he said. And then he just stared at her, and it seemed as if he somehow knew her. Jedi, he whispered. Then all light in Yeoman Carr's eyes faded, and he lay very still. The door burst open and Luke came rushing in, R2-D2 hot on his heels. It hit Mara, then. The exertion, and something about the very nature of this poisoned planet that tugged at her insides. As if this disease within her fed off the perversion that was Balkaden. Get me out of here, she whispered to Luke. The three left the control room with Luke bearing a bulging sack... Mara looked at him curiously. He reached into the bag and pulled out one of a pair of brown leathery items that looked like ridged balls. I think they're alive. Mara, having witnessed a living staff and apparently living jelly, was not overly surprised. Put them in a safe place, she replied. Luke took the bag and its contents to a strong locker at the back of the Jade Saber's bridge and closed it up tight. Even after they had cleared the clouds and broken out of Belkaden's atmosphere, Mara's face remained blanched, and her head lolled about weakly. Did he hurt you? Luke asked. No, it was just being there, Mara tried to explain. I started feeling worse as soon as we neared Belkaden. She paused and shook her head helplessly. It was as if this disease within me was somehow bolstered by the plague affecting the planet. And the beetles? Luke prompted, nodding toward the two specimen jars. You believe they somehow caused the damage to Balkaden? Mara looked at him, having no practical response, no real evidence. It was just a feeling. But it was a feeling that Luke shared. Could it all? Belkaden, the beetles, the barbaric warrior, Mara's illness, be somehow connected? And what about Mara's insistence that this warrior was somehow devoid of, or rather unconnected to, the Force? Just like you said about the Ramamulian rebel, Nom Anur, Luke remarked. And Mara nodded. They turned as one, hearing a voice behind them. It was coming from the closed locker. Luke ran to it and pulled it open, then brought forth the bag and dumped it onto the floor. And then Luke jumped 
And Mara cried out in surprise and horror at the disembodied head that seemed to have replaced one of the leathery balls. The head said. Neither Luke nor Mara recognized the language. The head continued speaking for a few more moments, lips and eyes moving as if it were indeed the actual speaker. Then, as it finished speaking, the leathery bag inverted, rolling back in on itself and appearing again exactly like the other one. A communication device, Mara remarked, daring to prod the seemingly lifeless thing. But who was that message for? Did you get that, R2? Luke asked, and the droid beeped affirmatively. He turned to Mara. 3PO will translate it once R2 transfers the information to him. R2-D2 whistled and clicked, and Luke understood that the droid was trying to show him something. An image came up on the small view screen atop the droid's work pod, a replay of Excal-4's tracking of the object streaking in from outside the galaxy. R2-D2 brought up Excal's determinations about its course, the fourth planet of the Helska system. Luke and Mara watched it all in disbelief, with too much to digest, too many possibilities. Luke considered the situation carefully for a long moment. Back to Landos, he said at last, but Mara was already feeding in that course, acting on the same thought. The ground of Cernpedal rumbled and rolled, and a great wave of splintering rock reared up at them, toppling a building into the street. Anakin banked the land speeder and throttled up, weaving in and out of falling and bouncing chunks of stone, sweeping past people screaming in terror and pain. Outside the city, the quakes were even more violent. A strong wind was blowing now, and Anakin feared that the atmosphere itself might be compressing under the disturbance of the descending moon. He slowed the land speeder and closed his eyes, feeling the sensations about him, and there before him... He clearly sensed the tractor beam. They came to a wide and empty field, a bowl within the low mountain range. Anakin immediately spotted the crater in the middle of that field, and didn't have to fall back into the forest to know that this was the source. The crater was not large, barely a couple dozen meters across, nor was it deep, perhaps ten meters. And there, in the bottom, sat something that resembled a huge, pulsating, dark red heart with deep blue spikes all about it. That thing is bringing down the beetle, the old man asked incredulously. A familiar roar turned Anakin's eyes skyward, and he saw the Millennium Falcon. It landed fast, and Han ran down to his son. Many other people, refugees, poked their heads out to see what might be going on. We've got to get back, Han cried. Chewie's organizing the retreat from the planet, but we've barely got enough ships. The creature's down there. Anakin replied, pointing to the crater. It's a living thing. Han shook his head. Doesn't matter anymore, he replied with a wry twist of his lips. And Anakin understood. For Cernpital, it was too late. Even if they somehow managed to kill this creature or stop its tractor beam, Davido's orbit was lost and the moon would come crashing down. Every second means someone else dies, Han remarked. And Anakin sprinted for the ramp. The old man, though, didn't follow. Instead, he walked back up to the crater rim. I must at least ensure that this devil doesn't escape to destroy another world, he explained. And he opened his cloak and produced a meter-long tube. Thermal detonator, he said. You should be leaving. You're crazy, Hans started to say. 
But the mayor of Cernfordal City just went over to the edge of the crater and calmly leapt into the hole. The falcon had barely lifted away when the detonator blew, lifting tons and tons of dirt into a gigantic mushroom cloud. Anakin stared out the window, back toward the area of the original crater. He felt no more pull from the alien creature. He got it, he informed his father. Han nodded. The old man hadn't bought them a minute of time, hadn't saved Cernpedal at all, but still they both understood. He had done something truly valuable and heroic. By the time Han got the Falcon back to Cernpedal City, the docking area was gone, broken apart by the tremendous upheavals. Han spotted Chewie almost immediately, the Wookiee waving one long arm and holding a pair of children under the other. Help him, he instructed his son, and Anakin rushed away, pushing through the mob that packed the Falcon to the lower landing ramp. Han brought the ship in low and slow, compensating for the roaring winds. Debris was flying everywhere, and luck alone had kept Chewie and those kids from being washed away in it. He edged the Falcon down to within a few meters of the ground and moved over to Chewbacca's position. The kids are in, Anakin called over the intercom. I'm getting Chewie in now. An explosion rocked the city a few blocks to the side of the Falcon, and the small shuttle started to rise above the remnants of one wall, but quickly shut down and disappeared from view. Han banged a fist on his console. You got him, kid? He called to his son. Chewie's going for the shuttle, Anakin called back. I'm going too. Meet us there. Even as Anakin finished, Han saw Chewie go running out from under the Falcon, drawing his bowcaster as he went. Anakin came close behind, gaining ground as Chewie slowed to blow a hole in the wall between them and the downed shuttle. We've got to clear it, Anakin shouted as he came through that wall to find the tail end of the shuttle buried too deep under a pile of debris to dare risk a takeoff. Chewie charged right in, bowcaster firing, cutting up the bigger chunks. He grabbed pieces with one strong arm and sent them flying aside. Soon enough, Chewie fell back, hailing the woman inside with great and urgent howls. Take her out! Anakin cried to the woman, translating the Wookiee's words. He and Chewie fell back as the shuttle blasted away. The lower landing ramp of the Millennium Falcon was down, with Han perched on it, extending his hand to his son and his partner. Come on! he cried. It's ending fast! Chewie fought powerfully against the wind, making some progress, and then Anakin was beside him, practically floating off the ground, pulling him along with the strength of the Force. A tiny, pitiful cry rang in their ears. Both glanced all around, discerning the Source, spotting large eyes peering out at them from under a half-buried bulkhead. Abruptly, Anakin let go of Chewie and changed course, and the Wookiee, with only a quick glance to Han, followed. They went to work wildly on the bulkhead, tossing aside debris. And then Chewie reached in and pulled out a small boy, barely a toddler. Together, the three turned for the Falcon, struggling as the ground heaved and broke apart. They were near, so close, that Han could almost grab Anakin's extended hand when a barrage of debris swept past. Chewie held his ground and turned his powerful body to protect the toddler, but a piece of stone clipped Anakin's head, costing him his concentration and launching him far in a rolling, bouncing tumble. Han's eyes widened with horror. Chewie thrust the toddler into Han's arms, and then the Wookiee turned about and half ran, half rode the wind to catch up with the fallen Anakin. 
Han handed off the toddler and rushed back to the cockpit, knowing the two could never get back to the ship against this mounting storm. He brought the Falcon in fast but steady, moving to the spot even as Chewie lifted Anakin in his arms. Han locked her in place and rushed back to the landing ramp, but the Falcon couldn't hold position now, and she drifted up and to the side, her engines roaring in protest. Chewie! he cried. Hanging right off the ramp now, several others crowded about him, holding him in place by the legs. He reached desperately for the Wookiee, but the Falcon was up too high. Chewbacca gave his friend a resigned, contented look, then threw Anakin up into Han's waiting arms. The ground rolled and bucked, and suddenly Chewie was far, far away. Han cradled Anakin to the floor just inside, and the boy was conscious again, struggling to his feet as his father rushed back to the cockpit. Anakin came up beside him, falling into Chewie's chair. Where is he? Han cried. Anakin took a deep, steadying breath. He knew Chewie so well. Surely he could find his friend with the Force. To the left, he cried. Take it, Han told him, and he ran back to the landing ramp. Get me to him! Anakin worked furiously over the controls, the ship vibrating so violently that he thought it might just shake apart. Oh no, he breathed. For there stood Chewie, his back to the Falcon. And in front of the Wookiee, a fiery Dobito was streaking down. Chewie turned about and took one step toward Han and the Falcon. And then a burst of tremendous hot wind blasted through, tossing him to the ground, toppling buildings. One pile of rubble crashed atop the Falcon, sending the nose of the ship up. Anakin fought her back to level, started to turn her about to find the Wookiee, but saw, instead, in all her devastating glory, the last descent of Dobito. They were out of time. Anakin knew it immediately. If he turned for Chewie, if he did anything other than take her straight up and out, the explosion of the crashing moon would tear the Falcon apart. He heard his father's pleading cry to get him back to Chewie. Anakin pointed the Millennium Falcon skyward and punched the throttle. Han saw a battered and bloody Chewie regained his footing, stood up high on one pile of rubble and faced the descending moon with arms upraised and a defiant roar. The scene receded quickly. But Han kept his eyes locked on the spot, burning that image of the very last moments of his friend's life indelibly into his consciousness. And then he saw the beginning of the final cataclysm as Dobito plowed into the city. The landing ramp rose, suddenly locking into place. Han knew it to be the doings of his son. And then the Falcon went spinning away as the shockwave hit her. Han didn't even consider the danger to him and the others, not even to his son at that critical moment. He just thought of Chewie, of that last tragic image. The Wookiee shaking his fist at the great unbeatable enemy. A fitting last pose of defiance, but one that did nothing to mend the tear ripping through Han's heart. They limped away from the planet, a line of freighters and shuttles and every other type of ship as could be found on the outer rim, a line of bedraggled, horrified refugees. Cern Pedal was a dead thing, oblivious to the pain and the destruction. Han Solo stared at the wobbling planet for a long, long time, his eyes registering the truth 
that his heart could not. We've got a hundred and eleven ships in the convoy, Anakin said, coming up behind his father nervously, not really knowing what to say or do, whether to hug Han or run away from him. Han turned to face his young son, his face blank as if he had not heard. A hundred and eleven... Anakin started to reiterate. You left him, Han said, quietly, calmly. The accusation hit Anakin as hard as any punch ever could. Anakin stuttered over several replies. We, we, we had to get out of there, he finally managed to say. The moon was coming down. Chewie, who had just done everything to save you, Han said with a growl, poking his finger into Anakin's chest. You left him! Anakin turned and ran off. Han stormed back to the Falcon's bridge. How alone he felt when he turned and saw the empty seat beside him. I'm going back, Han told himself. Chewie found a way to get off planet. Logically, it seemed impossible, but logic could not play here in Han's emotional turmoil. He called to the next ship in the long line, a freighter, and offered the coordinates for Debrillion. Then he brought the Falcon about hard, turning back for Cernpedal, turning back for Chewie. Need help! came a distress call, screaming across all channels from one of the convoy ships before Han had gone halfway through the maneuver. No! The ship's pilot called out. They're coming through! And bugs! Han grumbled and muttered a stream of curses, but he could not ignore that call, and so he brought up the coordinates of the call and put the Falcon on course for the hailing ship, a shuttle far back in the line. Insects, he muttered. But even as he said the word, his skepticism faded in the face of what his eyes were plainly showing him. Insects. Huge creatures boring through the titanium alloy hull of the shuttle. Breach! Breach! came the desperate cry from the ship. Han brought the Falcon in fast, and brought his shields up to full, and even cranked off a shot with his forward laser cannon, blasting one hovering insect into a million pieces. But there was little he could do for the doomed shuttle. He saw a pair of insects boring into the ion drives, and then the shuttle exploded, disappearing in a blaze of sparks and a puff of flame. Han flew the Falcon all about the area, seeking any remaining enemies. His instruments noted another ship a long way off and not moving very quickly. It was too far for him to get any identification. He opened a channel to it, calling out. No response. Han called again, then put his communicator through a search of all frequencies. Skip to is damage. Aid. Skip to is damage. The same message played back to Han again and again. It had been recorded and put on automatic send, he understood. And he feared that Kip Duran might be already dead. Han called to the lead ship in the convoy. You keep your line and your course. Get some of the quicker ships running a watch line along both flanks. Watch out for those bug things. I'm going after that other ship. I think it's a friend of mine. He clicked off the external communicator. Then, after a moment's pause, turned on the ship's internal intercom. He sat staring at it for a long, long while then blew a sigh. Anakin, he called. I could use a co-pilot up here. A few moments later, his son walked tentatively into the control room and slipped quietly into the seat beside him. We've got a distress call, 
Khan explained, his tone cold and calm. I think it's Kip. Got himself into some kind of trouble. Anakin wanted to tell his father again that he had flown off Cern Padal to save the Falcon, that they had run out of time, that there was nothing they could have done to save Chewbacca. Even to determined Anakin, those words seemed hollow indeed in light of the reality, in light of the fact that Chewie was gone, was dead, and that the Wookiee had died saving him. The burden of that awful truth bowed the boy's head. Kip Duran walked into the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon a short while later, having come across on a walking dock, a tube extending from the freighter that had connected the X-Wing to hard dock with the Falcon's upper hatch. Do you know what those bug things are? Han asked a moment later. Kip shrugged. We followed a ship from Belkaden to the fourth planet of the Helska system, he explained, and there we got... He paused and swallowed hard several times. All thirteen of the others? Han asked, catching on. Kip nodded grimly. By the bug things? They came after, Kip explained. And he went on to detail the asteroid-like starfighters, telling how his buddies had their shields torn away one by one. Han started to reply, but he paused, staring intently at his console screen. Scores of signals were appearing... And then more, and more, and more large signals, stronger than any the insectoid creatures might show. Tell me about these starfighter things again, he said. They put the call out immediately to the convoy to break ranks and head for Lando's place. Then pilots laid in their course and jumped to hyperspace. We've got more cannons than people to operate them, Lando said with that wry grin of his. From salvage operations, mostly. Taken from the burned-out hulks of Imperial Star Destroyers. Han wasn't surprised. We got your cargo unloaded, he snapped. Lando stared at him, confused. On Cernpedal, I mean, Han went on. We got your cargo off right before the moon fell. You think your business connection will be satisfied with that? Hey, buddy, it wasn't my fault, Lando said, patting his hands in the air. It was your fault that we were there, Han growled at him. And 20,000 people are glad that you were, Lando retorted, pointedly reminding his friend that though the loss of Chewbacca was a very bitter price to pay, the efforts of Han, Anakin, and the Wookiee had saved thousands and thousands of people. Han chewed his lip, his fists clenching and opening at his sides. Han, came a shout from down the corridor, and Leia came rushing out a door. Oh, I heard, she cried, running up and wrapping her husband in a tight hug. Anakin told me. Han buried his face in Leia's dark hair, buried his expressions, and let his inner turmoil remain a private thing. But Leia, ever perceptive, broke the hug and pushed her husband back to arm's length. What is it? she prodded. Han blew a long sigh and stared at her hard. A disagreement over our retreat, he explained. What does that mean? He left him, Han blurted, ending with a sputtering growl. He shook his head and gently but firmly moved Leia aside. We've got to get ready for the attack, 
he said. Leia held onto his arm, forced him to turn back. He left him? she echoed suspiciously. Anakin left him. Left Chewie, Han spat. Leia, too shocked to respond, just let go, and Han stormed away, leaving her full of questions and fears. The rejuvenator is at Ord Mantell, Leia explained, looking up from the communicator. She can be here in three days. Lando looked over at Han, neither of them thrilled by the news. Leia had been calling out all morning, trying to locate some real firepower within the region, but Dubrillion was far from the core and far from any current New Republic activities, leaving the Rejuvenator as the closest major warship. Unfortunately, the swarm of enemy ships would likely arrive within two days, if they kept their present course and speed. And that was a big if, Han knew. Put out the call for the Star Destroyer, Lando said to Leia. Then he turned to Han. We'll hold them off until the Rejuvenator gets here, and we'll have the way clear for it to link up with our own forces. He looked to Han. What do you plan to do with the Falcon? I'll be up there, fighting, Han promised. And there was indeed the promise of death in his eyes, a cold, hard stare as chilling a look as Leia had ever seen on his face. He was transferring his grief into anger, she knew. He was intending to make every enemy pay for the loss of his closest friend. Jason, Jaina, and Anakin walked into the control room then, their expressions equally solid and determined. We'll be up there, too, Jaina declared. Oh, no, Han started to argue. We're Jedi Knights, Jason interrupted. You can't keep us out of the fight. I don't need three co-pilots, Han shot back. And you've already got one, because I'm coming with you, Leia declared. Everyone in the room turned to regard her curiously. Leia had long ago traded in her warrior garb for one of diplomacy, but she steeled her gaze, an expression that offered no room for compromise. There you have it, Han replied. Your mother's flying beside me. All three of the kids were shaking their heads, telling Leia clearly that Han was missing their intention. I'm not your co-pilot, Jaina agreed. I fly better in a starfighter. All three of us can fight, Jason added. You know that. And you need pilots. Han started to respond, stopped, and took a deep and steadying breath, then looked to Lando. Can you give them shields from on planet, he asked, like the ones they had in the asteroid belt? Bellrunner One will be able to lend some shielding power to the equipped starfighters, Lando replied, as long as they stay close to home. How many starfighters can we equip? Han asked. Enough for the kids, Lando replied with a shrug. Those TIE fighters don't carry any weapons, Jaina protested. They do now, Lando assured her. Not much, he admitted, just a single laser cannon and one bank of torpedoes. It'll take some pretty amazing flying for you guys to hand out any real damage to the enemy fleet. He paused there and let the words hang in the air. And Leia saw the intrigue mounting on the faces of her three children. She looked back to Lando and wasn't sure if she should be grateful or angry with him for the sly way he had just played on their egos. For Leia wasn't thrilled at all about the prospect of having the kids up there in the middle of the fighting. But indeed, there seemed few options. They had seen the tracking data on the incoming force, and it was huge. You stay close to the planet, Leia said. Jaina and Jason beamed at the news that they wouldn't be left out of it this time. There was no smile on the face of young Anakin, though. 
He stared at his father, looking for some hint of forgiveness. He found none. Jaina and Jason started out of the room, then sweeping Anakin up in their wake. They're in the system, Leia announced from the Falcon's second seat beside Han, with a nervous C-3PO standing behind them chattering away about everything and nothing all at once. The ship's console warning signals chirped in, and glancing down at the small viewer, they caught the approach of the first retreating friendly starfighters, just a few greenish blips on the screen, and then abruptly that screen practically turned red for the sheer number of ships tracking in behind them. Too many! came a cry over the comm from one of the starfighters, and Han and Leia could certainly appreciate the sentiment. The three younger Solos heard the reports as well, and the first losses to their comrades cut deep into their hearts as they swept past Lando's tallest towers in their shield-enhanced TIE fighters. Beltrunner 1 was working perfectly on them, they knew, but their first run since coming up from Debrillion had shown them that the shield effect grew minimal as soon as any of the TIE fighters broke out of the planet's atmosphere. Their father's subsequent orders had been unyielding and thoroughly predictable. They were to run out the duration of the battle as surface patrol for Dubrillion. Jason called out first, spotting a flight of enemy fighters coming in hot, their volcano-like cannons firing. The three ties charged to meet the challenge. A pair of enemy fighters disappeared under the sudden barrage, but the remaining three reacted fast, leveling to meet this new threat. Their cannons blared, and the three solos didn't try to evade, but took hit after hit. The shields held. The ships came together. A trio of torpedoes, a burst of laser fire, and the threat was gone. That particular threat, at least. For now, calls from Derillion's surface mingled with the cries from the swerving and dodging fighters above. The city was starting to take a beating, with fires burning in several buildings. For every enemy fighter that went down, a dozen more seemed to take its place. Don't run a one here, came a cry. We're hit! We're hit! Taking shield energy back! We're stripped! Anakin confirmed. What do we do? Dad told us to stay low because of the shields, Jaina called, turning her nose to the sky. Shields are gone anyway, she explained. Let's go and join the bigger fight. Jaina smiled. She knew that her father wouldn't quite see things the way she had put them to her brothers, but that was a fight for another day. The three TIE fighters soared into black space. They saw the streaks of light of the continuing battle. Their instruments told them that many other craft were all about them. Multicolored coral blew to sparkling bits before the Falcon as one enemy fighter and then another fell victim to her thundering quad lasers. Shield's gone! came a cry from an X-Wing pilot with a swarm of pursuers on its tail. Han banked that way and the quad lasers blasted away, clearing off a line of those pursuing ships. Still, the Falcon couldn't get them all, and the X-Wing seemed doomed. But then suddenly came a burst from the other side, a trio of laser cannon pulses taking out the pursuit and allowing the X-Wing to break free toward the planet. Han and Leia's elation at the rescue lasted only the few seconds it took them to discern the source of the reinforcements. Three modified TIE fighters. Break back to the planet! Han cried to his children. Use Lando's shields! Don't run her ones down, Jaina replied. No shields there either. Break back! Han screamed. Leia sensed and shared in Han's distress. 
She knew it was worse for him, though, understood that he was on the very edge of control here, his grief and horror for Chewbacca, wrapping itself around his fears for his children, elevating his sense of loss and dread to the breaking point. Han put the Falcon into a tight turn, they wasn't surprised, bringing her around to follow the TIE fighters, and already the two parents could hear the banter of their children as the three intercepted a host of enemy fighters. And their tone unnerved and bolstered Leia all at once, for the kids were into it with all the passion of seasoned warriors, flying heart and soul. Han and Leia heard the whoops of delight as enemy fighter after fighter went away in a burst of sparkling pieces. All right, Jaina! But both parents held their grim countenance, for both had seen enough battles to understand that those whoops of delight would become cries of despair if one of the three got blown apart. And now it seemed as if the elements of surprise had flown, as if the enemy fighters were converging in an orderly and devastating fashion on the three hotshots. And both Han and Leia heard their three children calling out that there were too many to fight. Break back to Tabrillion! Jaina cried, the most welcome call Han and Leia had ever heard. But then Anakin's voice, cold and calm, chimed in. No, he said. Follow me. Too many! Jason complained. We've run the belt. They haven't, Anakin said grimly. Leia's eyes popped open wide. They've got no shields, she whispered, more to herself than anyone else. But she heard Han's groan and realized that he had heard her. Han pulled the microphone from the console and roared into it. Break back! No response. Just static. The kids had already entered Lando's folly. <laughs>